Okay, well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. A special welcome to those of you who are joining me live today through the Integral Life portal. Thank you, Integral Life. Become a member of Integral Life. Uh, thank you for joining me on YouTube uh, and Facebook, Global Integral. Uh, it's good to be here. And I really like having this every week format. And I'm trying to just let it be more of a commentary on what's going on because I'm doing my interviews as well and posting everything, of course, on the dailyevolver.com. That's my website where I have 10 years worth of stuff. And also a good theory section, if, the, if you're interested in you know, brushing up in the theory or, or, or if you're new to it, um, you might check that out. And uh, you can reach me at the connect tab on integral or on, on dailyevolver.com. And um, there's a place where you can leave me a voicemail and you can always write me at jeff at dailyevolver.com. I love hearing from you. I often use what you send on the show as I will today, several things. And um, so, so here we go. So today I wanna take a look at, um, you know, it feels a little bit like a broken record in terms of understanding Trump and also understanding Trump supporters and teasing, the part, the differences and how that works. And I've been talking about it a lot. I did a session on it last week. And, um, and today I wanna to focus on a particular subset that um, really had its flourishing, its moment this last week. And these are the evangelicals that support Trump and particularly the people who have coalesced around what they're calling the Jericho movement which is a subset of Stop the Steal, uh, which has arisen around Trump's fraudulent fraud about being defrauded of the election. Uh, anyway, these are the people who love, love, love Trump. And, you know, I've talked a lot about the, how development explains it so much more effectively than does a theology or even character or even morality. Development is where it's at, and Integral really has the explanatory power that I think, you know, is the, the most I can find anywhere. And so anyway, just to focus on these people, uh, the Jericho movement is, first of all, named after a great battle. It was uh, one of the is Israelites' first battles in the conquest of Canaan, where they surrounded the city of Jericho, the sinful city of Jericho and marched around blaring their trumpets uh, as they walked around, I think seven times. And the walls came a tumbling down. We all know that song. And God brought the walls of the city down and the Israelis won. And that was really, they're off to the races at that point. So this movement is, uh, you know, uh, built around that uh, myth or reality, who knows, uh, probably some of both, uh, but, one of their practices, and this is all new, but you know, their, their, their members are called to go to their state legislatures every once a week and walk around blowing trumpets, walking around seven times. It's easy to laugh at that. I shouldn't have. But, you know, this is the world they live in. It's a mythical world. It's the world of exit red entry and middle blue or Amber, the traditional stage, as opposed to modern and postmodern and integral. You can go to the theory section, see all of these maps about this sort of thing. 
but these are the stages uh, of development that are engaged in the culture war. And, you know, the culture war is, it's like the 10 yard lines are getting populated. We have the ultra woke multiculturalists, all new gender fluid, all kinds of new things there. And then we have the, the most conservative of the conservative um, finding their voice too. And this is welcome to the age of the internet. They used to have mimeograph machines. Now they have the internet like everybody else. So, um, so they have this last Saturday, their big march in Washington, DC. And I have not been able to find out the numbers. There, there's certainly some pictures of thousands of people. Uh, they talk about thousands of people. Uh, there were fewer people than the MAGA march uh, last uh, two or three weeks ago after the election. But this, it was a big march in Washington. It was last Saturday. And, um, you know, it was what you would expect a, a lot of evangelical leaders um, that did prayers and talked and preached about how the election was stolen, very much following the Trumpian line that the election is fraudulent and they are being persecuted. And yet it was very sort of ecumenical in a way too. There were um, Catholics, there were Jews, there were people of all races, especially on stage, which is significant. You know, they, they wanna be seen not as racists. They had a lot of Hispanic and black speakers and they believe it too, you know, this is again, developmental race is a very imperfect uh, descriptor or ex explainer of it. Uh, but there's a couple that were, um, uh, I'm gonna point out that were I think inter extra interesting. There was a Father Greg Bramlage, who is from Colorado, he's a priest and he's an exorcist. And um, he prayed down heaven to deliver America from demons. Uh, the demons, the demonic forces that are stealing the election from Donald Trump. And there was a Catholic priest praying to Mother Mary and the angels. An opera singer sang Ave Maria. A Hispanic priest blessed a framed image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And uh, they're gonna give it to Melania Trump. There was a woman uh, who was wearing a blue scarf in honor of the second day of Hanukkah, and she did a chant around no king but Jesus, no king but Jesus. And, you know, in, in some ways, this is can be positive. This is a sort of a, a mixing and a sort of dissolving of some of the boundaries that used to separate these people. But they find that they're together in wanting to stand athwart history, yelling, stop, enough with you know, your modernity and your kids moving away from home and money and consumerism and not to mention multiculturalism and all of that craziness. They're, so they're united in this. And we had the Mike, uh, Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy. And we had Trump flying over in Marine One. And, uh, and I'm gonna play a clip of the um, a video that they put up shortly uh, the Jericho movement put up after the march. So um, you can get a sense of how they see themselves here. This is like a minute clip. 
someday people are going to ask me, where were you when your country, the greatest country in the world, was stolen by crooked politicians? And I don't want to say that I sat at home watching on TV and doing nothing. What they do not realize is that we are here and we will stand up and fight. Wake up, America. This is our battle. This is our fight. This is for our freedom. If we lose freedom here, there is no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. Um, yeah, it's a little, uh, fear runs up your spine <laughs> from that. Uh, but there they are. There are brothers and sisters in, uh, the American soup. The other one that, um, th this is where, I don't know what to think about this, this Alex Jones, who is the conspiracy theorist who hawks his survivalist gear and seems like a performance artist in irredeemable to me, you know, and to hook your star to Alex Jones is a, a real black mark. I mean, he, this is the guy who denies Sandy Hook happens and not only denies that it happens in sort of a theatrical way, but has harassed the parents of these children that were killed in that mass shooting, these, this kindergarten, these six-year-olds. So, you know, you don't come back from that. And so I think it's a black mark against um, who's the big Joe Rogan, who, who had him on. Uh, and I think it's a horrible black mark that Christians would ever associate themselves with this man, but they have, and he with them, you know, he's all about Jesus now. And, um, and I do want to play a clip from him because it shows to me the extreme of what went on there. And the system is publicly stealing this election from the biggest landslide and the biggest political realignment since 1776. So no, whatever happens, we will never give up. We will never surrender. We will never back down to the satanic, pedophile, globalist, new world order and their walking dead, reanimated corpse, Joe Biden. And we will never recognize him. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, his performance art, it's not bad. We will never back down to the satanic globalist pedophiles, New World Order, and their walking dead reanimated corpse, Joe Biden. You know, that's uh, kind of creative. But, oh, it's nauseating. Anyway, um, you know, from a political standpoint, I'm glad they associate with him because he is um, uh, most reasonable people, including the movable middle, are repulsed by the guy. And, you know, it actually has the flavor of, of waning, of deflating. I talked about last week about, about how Trump is deflating like one of those big balloons in the car lot parking lot that they have tethered where it's bounces, but it's every time it's smaller and more deflated. And, and that's true of this with, as I said, the numbers were smaller. But, you know, it's one of the things that the systems theorists talk about with entropic systems, systems that are winding down can have eddies and vortexes that are flashing up. And so, you know, we did see that. We saw after this demonstration 
violence. The the Proud Boys arrived at some point. There was like only 200 of them, but there are enough that I think there was 23 arrests. There was a couple knife fights, a couple stabbings. And um, I will say nothing like the summer of love from the left where Antifa, whoever they are, uh, did the same thing. This is how red co-ops, amber, modern, you know, reasonable demonstrations get co-opted because they're in it for the mayhem. So again, I'm surprised in a way and, 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 and so far uh, feeling that we're not gonna have mass violence from this Trump nonsense, but we had some and we'll probably have some more. Uh, anyway, the other thing that I, I would say that is in some ways positive evolutionarily about this is that it is causing a schism, literally, uh, among the evangelicals, where the, we have these, you know, true believers, Trumpsters, you know, some of them, I wonder if they know that they're not in it for the performance art in a way. I mean, I, I saw some of the crowd shots, maybe you noticed them too, when Alex Jones was speaking. And, you know, people, some of them are sort of clapping and some of them are like, what? <laughs> Reanimated corpse? Uh, you know, so I'm not sure they all believe it. And, you know, on the left, we have our fairy tales, too, that we that, that we thrill to. Uh, so, you know, I think actually Stacey Abrams, who is at least on the face of it, and, and forgive me, I don't know the details. And if you do, you can send them to me. But on the face of it, she claims that she was defrauded out of an election. She has not conceded. She ran for governor of, of Georgia. And she, uh, it's not a, a systems fraud in the sense that there's nothing provable that uh, she's taken to court, but just that sense that there has been a fraudulent election because Republicans suppressed the vote. And it's that kind of thing that the, the right, they can go there too. You know, I always think of the, it's a thought experiment I do where I, in trying to understand where the right's coming from and where their hearts are. That's a really, in bellies even, you know, where, where, where it really feels comfortable and right. I sometimes use the Obama in Texas strategy where I think of how frustrating it was to me. And I don't even remember the details, but how frustrating it would be when Obama's policies would be ignored in Texas or their state legislator would uh, come up with something different, or the judges would knock down one of his rules, or that it was just slow walked. And I never believed it, you know. And if you walk into these polling stations in some of these places, like where I grew up, and every woman looks like a church lady who's working the polls, and every guy has a baseball cap, and you wonder, are they really counting the votes right here? You know, and, and made nothing provable. But if I really want to go there, I could say, yeah, I, I get it. You know, and so I'm trying to use that and uh, the Obama in Texas uh, thought experiment as a way of opening my heart and gut to where they're coming from. Um, so anyway, the schism that's that's arising and I'll point out, I think, one of the most thoughtful and fruitful expressions of this schism. And this is Rod Dreyer, and I've mentioned him on the show before. I like Rod Dreyer. He's a, the, he wrote the Benedictine Option. He's a very committed fundamentalist Christian, 
who believes that Christians ought to separate from general society and create these Benedictine bubbles where they have their own lives and you know they're they're in the world but not of the world, and it's radical and interesting. And he writes for the American Conservative, and been a big voice in the evangelical movement and Christian right. And he, um, in fact, he has a new book out. I'm trying to remember the name of it. But at any rate, he, he was appalled by this rally. And so he's splitting off from this. So we see a new differentiation, which is essential before the next integration. Remember differentiation and integration? Yeah. So uh, he was talking about one of the highlights of the rally in Washington was a, an interview on stage between Charlie Kirk. And Charlie Kirk's a big deal in the uh, Trumpian right. He's the guy who started Turning Points, which proselytizes Trumpism on the campuses and high schools. And he's got like the fifth largest Twitter numbers of anybody. And he's a big deal, young guy. And so he's interviewing a sort of a dean, uh, a thoughtful historian uh, pastor uh, in the evangelical right, Eric Metaxas, Metaxas, Eric Metaxas. And Metaxas, this is widely quoted. You didn't see a lot about this rally, by the way, at the mainstream media, except some of the Proud Boys stuff at the end. But... Um, some of this Metaxas stuff came through because he said that patriots, these Trump uh, people who believe that the election was stolen, must fight to the last drop of blood to preserve Trump's presidency. And that those who resist them are the same as the Germans who stood by and did nothing to stop Hitler. And Metaxas said, when Charlie... Kirk asked him about the court cases, uh, and Metaxas said he was blissfully unaware of it because it doesn't matter what can be proven in court. It, what, what matters is what's happening, and, and that is that evil is taking over good and that the election was stolen. And so Rod Dreher, in his column, responds to this, and he writes about this interview. He says, this knocked me flat. I have known Metaxas since 1998. He is one of the sweetest men you could hope to meet, gentle and kind, a pleasure to be around, not a hater in the least. Though I have not supported his Trumpist politics, I would not have figured him for someone who would go as far as he did on the Kirk interview. What kind of person calls, calls for spilling blood? What kind of person calls for spilling blood in defense of a political cause for which he does not care if any factual justification exists? What kind of person compares doubters to Nazi collaborators? A religious zealot, that's the kind. The only way one can justify that hysterical stance is if one conflates religion with politics and politics with religion. That line, when God gives you a vision you don't need to know anything else, which is a line Metaxas said, turns out to be the main key to understanding all of this. Over two, over two decades ago, when I was getting to know Eric Metaxas, we had a friendly argument over something theological as we walked around Manhattan. 
When I challenged something Eric said, he replied that God had, had told him it was the thing to do. How do you know that, I asked, because he did. The argument went nowhere. I remember it so clearly because that was the first time I ever had a conversation with someone who asserted that something was true, not because God said it. All Christians must believe that or throw out the scriptures, but because God had said it to them personally. Yeah. Well, in the mythic and magic world, the spirits, God's talking to you all the time. Everything is communicating with you on that level. And, you know, I, I often make the point that every stage of development has a mean side where they repress the previous stage. And one of the examples I use about the fundamentalism and totalitarianism of innocent old modernity orange stage of development, the one that comes out of traditionalism, is that God is banished from all talk. And if, if you want to find out how that works, try going to your next business meeting and arguing for your great idea because God told you to do it. Instead of any, no charts or graphs, God told me. That, you'd be laughed out, you'd be, you know, certainly iced out, uh, and, uh, but yet be Pre, in pre-modern times, that would be the argument. It's the only argument, really, or some soothsayer or, you know, goat entrails. It's what you got. So anyway, so that's this new schism forming. And I wanted to also play another clip. This was reported on Morning Joe. It's it's uh, everywhere, of course. It's Beth Moore, who is also a big evangelical teacher. She does stadiums for her talks, of, uh, for her, she travels around. She's a big time evangel evangelist. And she too uh, came out after this rally against it. So here's what she said. She said, I do, this is her first tweet. I do not believe these are the days for mincing words. I'm 63 and a half years old, and I have never seen anything in these United States of America I found more astonishingly seductive and dangerous to the saints of God than Trumpism. This Christian nationalism is not of God. Move back from it. And that's her first tweet, and here's her second. She says, fellow leaders... We will be held responsible for remaining passive in this day of seduction to save our own skin while the saints we've been entrusted to serve are being seduced, manipulated, used, all caps, and stirred up into a lather of zeal devoid of the Holy Spirit for political gain. So yeah, so that is one of many responses to this Jericho movement. And, uh, and, and just in general, uh, since the election, of people trying to understand how 70 million of us voted on both sides for Trump and Biden, and how could that be? And the people who are, you know, we think are the most moral and religious and ethical and all of the things that we associate with religion, right living, uh, are the most supportive of what is to people who aren't in that worldview, what is clearly one of the most mendacious human beings that we've ever heard of or met. 
Trump. So this is it's a very fruitful time to be reading all of these and hearing all of these opinions about that. And, and to me, it is culture waking up, you know, metabolizing the frothiness of this move that, you know, nothing stops movement. Uh, emergence is unstoppable. So, um, so yeah, so next I want to share a bit from Morning Joe. And what I found about Morning Joe, and I've, I've gotten turned off to Morning Joe because it's such an anti-Trump platform and you don't really hear anything other than that. But I will say that the last half hour of their three-hour show, they often have really interesting people, people who aren't willing to get up at six in the morning, but they will get up at nine <laughs> and come on and talk more philosophically. And this is one of those. And this was in response, I think it was Monday. So this is the Monday after the rally. And they're all sort of reeling from this rally because they paid attention to it. These are all Republicans talking here that have been, uh, they're, they're never Trump Republicans to be sure, but these are all Republicans. So it's Joe Scarborough, it's David French, John Meacham, and Susan Del Percio. Okay, so this is Joe Scarborough making his case, and this is a case that many people make, this is as far as they get, is that these people are so hypocritical. And uh, that's the best explanation they can come up with, and here's Joe with that one. The pastors in Pensacola, Florida that I know and love acted shamefully during the age of Trump. Shamefully, let me say it again, shamefully uh, guiding their flock. Uh, in a direction they know is a lie. Yeah, so that's Joe. I, I love the shame thing. It, it reminds me of last week when I played Diamond and Silk from Newsmax, and they were talking about, Whoopi Goldberg, girl, you should be ashamed. Uh, it's an assertion. It's not an argument, but we get to do that. So next is David French, and he is an intellectual conservative, you know, big time supporter of Bush and Romney and the, all of them, McCain, and now a never Trumper. And he, here's his explanation. I thought it was good. What you're dealing with is there's a subset of Christians who support Trump who believe that God had a very specific call on his life and that any intent, any effort to stop him from having a second term is demonically inspired, is satanically inspired. Okay, so... That is, you know, we've talked about that. That is the nature of the traditional stage of development. We move from the red stage of development or the warrior stage of development, where it's your tribe against my tribe and clan and empire versus empire. And then all of a sudden, monotheism comes online. We say God is the final arbiter that vengeance is his. We don't have to have these multi-generational honor codes anymore, and that um, uh, it's a titanic battle at this point between the forces of good, the transcendent forces of good God, and evil, the fallen angels, Satan, and so forth. And so we're involved in that battle. That is our life. That's what lights up our life. I like that. That's, that's, that's I think, a nice penetration into that mindset. Next Okay, this is Joe doing a little more in the hypocrisy about how they hassled, this This is the era of the 90s he's talking about, where they hassled Bill Clinton 
uh, about his you know, moral failings. And, um, and this is when William Bennett wrote his books on character and that sort of thing. So here, here he is. And we heard it in training union, our kids. We heard it everywhere. It permeated all of Christian culture from 1992 to 2000 when character mattered. That's all we heard. And now, and now you have people saying, like, I'm going to say former Christian leaders saying you you must die for Donald Trump. This is worth dying for. Yeah. And then he goes, and I'll just continue here. <laughs> and he goes into, again, this is the hypocrisy thing. These are these people are deluded. They're crazy. Uh, and he talks about how Donald Trump violates every beatitude. The beatitudes in the book of Matthews, this is the blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. This is Jesus, one of his great sermons. Blessed are those who hunger for what is right. Blessed are the merciful, the pure of heart, the peacemaker. Uh, th this is what he says about the Beatitudes. Go down every Beatitude, every single Beatitude. Donald Trump is the antithesis. It's not like he's a little off on the Beatitudes. He is the antithesis. That's <laughs> true. You got to admit Except for the last one, uh, blessed are the persecuted. Donald Trump, as I talked about last week, it read, which Donald Trump is read, um, you uh, divide the world into the, the sort of the, the prey and the persecutor or the, or the predator. And so the people bounce back and forth and Trump does. He's either persecuted or he's persecuting other people. So maybe that he, he gets one out of eight Beatitudes. All right, so then I think we're gonna go to John Meacham now. I, we have to be careful about judgment. And mm. what is it that makes these folks so uh, dissociated from uh, history that they are using this sacred story to uh, find their way within time and space? So what is that? Is there anything we can do about that? Okay. So um, very good sentiment there. We don't want to have judgment about these people. So then we're going to go into Susan Del Percio, and she is a Republican operative fundraiser. Now she writes, and here's her explanation. So I find them all false. I find their, their, their devoutness to Donald Trump based in, in very little except for what helps them. Okay, so these are not only hypocrites, but they are venal hypocrites who are just doing it for the money and uh, to stay in the fold. So those are those are the best explanations that they came up with on that show. And I think they hit some good ones. So anyway, uh, I did want to look at one other column that is from a man that I often like, Michael Gerson. I think he has a lot of integral sensibilities. And he too is taking this on. You know, How is it that these Christians are willing to die for Donald Trump? And he has three explanations. One he calls explanation number one. And he says, Occam's razor might indicate simple cynicism. Perhaps the assertion of obvious falsehoods about the election has become an entry-level commitment of conservative relevance. Perhaps the base has become so disconnected from reality that sanity is viewed as a betrayal. Perhaps affirming the simple truth would result in declining fundraising, listenership, 
and standing within the conservative community. And I think that's absolutely true. These people are professionals. And some of them are I mean, like Alex Jones. I mean, I, you know, at some point, it's like even with Trump, I don't know whether he believes this stuff or not. And Giuliani, interesting. I mean, Giuliani is an interesting case It's himself in that, you know, Giuliani was an American hero. He brought down the mob. Watch Fear City on Netflix. I think it's only three episodes. And it's a documentary about how Giuliani and this team of under 30s brought down the six major crime families in New York City in the 80s. And he was a hero. Now, he was a microphone and spotlight hog, but he was a hero. And after 9-11, as mayor of New York, uh, everybody thought he did a great job. Again, a microphone hog. <laughs> but it turns out that it was about the microphone. <laughs> and it's like Lindsey Graham said. He, he said, and I thought this was just such a damning statement in a way. He said, anybody who knows me knows I want to be relevant. So he goes from, you know, being John McCain's, uh, you know, BFF to now Trump's. And, you know, the, the thing that's in common is the microphone itself. So, and I think that's true of Trump. You know, I used to think Trump was a crazy Enneagram eight. Now I'm pretty sure he's just a crazy Enneagram three. He just, he's not so much into the power. There were lots of times where he could have exercised power in ways that, you know, a power monger would have. But he just wanted attention and he still does and he's still going to have it. And I think that's kind of the, uh, the currency. That's the end result for Trump. I was just watching an, another documentary on Netflix called Wild Country about the Bogwan and the, how he came in and took over this town of Antelope in Oregon in the 80s. And that he had this woman who worked for him and she was the muscle behind it all, Sheena. And she too, she was just, it was just about whatever she could say to get attention. And it's just it, fascinating how powerful that is in its, of itself. I've learned a lot about that in watching these people the last four years. And, you know, I get that there, that's a motivator for people. So anyway, that's his number one. Second is uh, maybe these conservative leaders were always committed to the triumph of their views but not to the values of democracy. Perhaps their main concern was the achievement of certain outcomes, the appointment of conservative judges, restrictions on abortions, and the application of democratic procedures. If a democratic leader achieves their moral goals, that is fine with them. If it takes a soft authoritarianism, that is fine as well. And then there's explanation number three that Gerson offers, and he says, Perhaps these conservative leaders view democracy as a secondary concern compared with the broader crisis of Western civilization. Maybe resisting the impending arrival of cultural and economic Marxism requires conservatives to use whatever means are necessary, including the invalidation of a valid election. And that's basically number two taken to the next level. And that's where I, a lot of, uh, people, I've talked about, you don't have to be a traditionalist or a social conservative or religious to support Trump. There are people in the integral world who support Trump. There are many, many modernists who support Trump for 
reasons of uh, economics and so forth. But there's also an intellectual movement in conservatism that is so allergic to the arising of green, particularly woke, postmodern multiculturalism that they feel that it is such an assault on Western civilization and it might take down Western civilization and modernity that they're willing to do whatever it takes. It's no longer, it's, it's a fight to the death. It's a red fight. And I, I get where they're coming from in a sense. I've learned a lot about this too in that, and I've talked about this, but I continue to get, it's like God sends me little clips and proofs that to the degree that liberalism has won the culture war. And we have, you know, for people who their hearts are traditional, you know, they voted for Nixon, Nixon got thrown out. They voted for Reagan. Postmodernity continues to come online. George W. Bush, an avowed evangelical. And yet, you know, the culture, the traditional culture continues to be ridiculed and discounted and seen as deplorable. And it's no longer long-haired guitar players. It's my granddaughter's, 12-year-old granddaughter's watching Cardi B sing about her wet-ass pussy. I, it's just, I, it's, it's no time to be nice. I, I don't, I, I, we got, this is, we're going off the cliff here, people. And Trump's minimal response. We need a monster to fight this monster. And I get where they, they feel that way. I do. I mean, I, I don't feel that way. I think Integral has an explanation. I think there's, wet ass pussy is evolutionarily potent. And I'll, I, talked about that. But I can see where they're offended. And, you know, I know some of you will be offended at that I actually used that title. But imagine how offended you'd be if that's your 12-year-old grand granddaughter watching that. Anyway, I, I did get a couple uh, clips that I want to share that I think show this casual disdain of traditional culture that has permeated the culture at large in a way that we liberals applauded, still do, and didn't really get it, you know, how offensive it is. And here's one. And this was sent to me by a friend of mine who is a mutual admirer of the author Bill Bryson. And Bill Bryson is, I think, one of our greatest writers of nonfiction alive. And he writes these wonderful books about the human body and about a brief history of almost everything is actually the name of one of his books, uh, Drop the Almost, and you have Ken Wilber's title. And he's good, beautiful writer. And she sent me this clip and she was like, she had just come upon it and she thought, oh, how fun is this? And so she sent this to me. And this is from his book, Lost Continent, Travels into Small Town America that he wrote in 1987 when he was just starting out, his first of many travelogues, beautiful travelogues. Um, and he had just come back, he's a young man, kind of a hippie, coming back from bumming around Europe. And this is 1987. And here's what he talks about when he goes into a diner in Tennessee. He writes, just south of Grand Junction, Tennessee, I passed over the state line into Mississippi. 
A sign behind the high, a sign beside the highway said, "Welcome to Mississippi. We shoot to kill." It didn't really. I just made that up. This was only the second time I had ever been to the deep south and entered it with a sense of foreboding. He was had foreboding about his own fantasy that wasn't I'll go on. It's surely no coincidence that all of those films you have ever seen about the South, Easy Rider, In the Heat of the Night, Cool Hand Luke, Brubaker, Deliverance, depict Southerners, depict Southerners as murderous, incestuous, shitty-shoed rednecks. It really is another country. Years ago, in the days of Vietnam, two friends and I drove to Florida during college spring break. We all had long hair. En route, we took a shortcut across the back roads of Georgia and stopped late one afternoon for a burger at a dinette in some dreary little Credville. And when we took our seats at the counter, the place fell silent. 14 people just stopped eating, their food resting in their mouths and stared at us. It was so quiet in there, you could have heard a fly fart. A whole room full of good old boys with cherry-covered cheeks, cherry-colored cheeks, and bib overalls watched us in silence and wondered whether their shotguns were loaded. It was disconcerting. To them, out here in the middle of nowhere, we were a curiosity. Some of them had clearly never seen no long-haired N-word loving Northern college educated commie hippies in the flesh before, and yet unspeakably loathsome they were. It was an odd sensation to feel so deeply hated by people who hadn't really had a proper chance to acquaint themselves with one's shortcomings. Projection anyone? Astonishing. Shocking to me actually. One last paragraph. I remember thinking that our parents didn't have the first idea where we were, other than that we were somewhere in the continental vastness between Des Moines and the Florida Keys. And if we disappeared, we would never be found. I had visions of my family sitting around the living room in years to come, and my mother saying, well, I wonder what happened to Billy and his friends. You'd think we'd have a postcard by now. Can I get anybody a sandwich? So. I have to say, I am shocked at how funny I thought that was when I read it in 1987, how much I loved that book, and how condescending and really, you know, hateful in a way I find it to be now. Aside from his own imaginings, what happened was they walked into a diner in rural Georgia and people stopped and looked at them because they had never seen people with long hair before. And yeah, maybe they thought bad things, but I don't think they thought anything worse than what Bill Bryson and his friends thought about them. And so we got to get hip to that, you know. And I'll, I'll just drive that home with one more clip. And this is a famous scene that we all love uh, from Five Easy Pieces. It's the rural diner being visited by cool green Postmoderns. Here we go. Jack Nicholson, famous scene. He wants some toast for God's sakes. Oops, folks, sorry. Looks like YouTube won't let me play the clip. 
so I shall now act it out for you. Uh, I think I can do that. It's not that long. And again, this is from Five Easy Pieces. It's a classic scene. Uh, this movie was nominated in 1970 for Best Picture, Best Screenplay, and Best Actor, Jack Nicholson, who is the lead in this scene. And here's the script. Roadside Cafe, it's Jack Nicholson and three women seated at a booth, his girlfriend, and I think it's two hitchhikers. And he's looking at his menu, and his name is Bobby. And he says, I'll have an omelet, no potatoes, give me tomatoes instead, and wheat toast instead of rolls. The waitress indicates something on the menu with the butt of her pencil, and the waitress says, no substitutions. Bobby, what does that mean? You don't have any tomatoes? Waitress, no, we have tomatoes. Bobby, but I can't have any, is that what you mean? Waitress, only what's on the menu. Again, indicating with her pencil. A number two, plain omelet, it comes with cottage fries and rolls. Bobby, I know what it comes with, but that's not what I want. And the wait waitress goes to leave. She says, I'll come back when you've made up your mind. She starts to move away and Bobby detains her. Bobby, wait, I've made up my mind. I want a plain omelet, forget the tomatoes, don't put the potatoes on the plate, and give me a side of wheat toast and a cup of coffee. Waitress, I'm sorry, we don't have side orders of toast. I can give you an English muffin or a coffee roll. Bobby, what do you mean you don't have side orders of toast? You make sandwiches, don't you? Waitress, would you like to talk to the manager? I don't make the rules. Bobby, wait, you have bread, don't you? And a toaster of some kind. Waitress, I don't make the rules. Bobby, okay, I'll make it as easy for you as I can. Give me an omelet, plain, and a chicken salad sandwich on wheat toast. No butter, no mayonnaise, no lettuce, and a cup of coffee. She begins writing down his order, repeating it sarcastically. Waitress, okay, one number two and a chicken salad. Hold the butter, the mayo, the lettuce, and a cup of coffee. Anything else? Bobby, now all you have to do is hold the chicken. Bring me the toast, charge me for the sandwich, and you haven't broken any rules. Waitress, challenging him, you want me to hold the chicken? Bobby, yeah, I want you to hold it between your knees. The other three laugh and the waitress points to a right to refuse sign above the counter. Waitress, you see that sign, sir? Bobby glances over at it, then back to her. Waitress, you'll have to leave. I'm not taking any more of your smartness and your sarcasm. He smiles politely at her. Then, Bobby, you see this sign? And he reaches his arm out and clears the table. And he knocks all the stuff on the floor and he gets up. And um, that's the end of that scene. And then they cut to the car. And one of the hitchhikers on the back seat says to him, fantastic that you could figure all that out and lie that down on her as a way of getting your toast. Fantastic. I would have just punched her out. Okay, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. That is the end of the scene. Now back to the podcast. Again, I loved that. We all thought that was the greatest. And now I'm embarrassed. You know, I find it repulsive. 
that he, you know, not only, you know, she's tired of his sarcasm and smartness, smart-assness, me too, actually. And then he, you know, he's violent. He knocks the stuff off the table in anger. And that's all justified because these people have rules about their toast. And, and just from a filmmaking point of view, I forgot this. I just looked it up. But that last part where he's back in the car with his friends and to drive the point home, she says, how cool it was that you did that to her and you get your toast. And I would have just punched her. So I get it. I'm sick of us too. Anyway, I think, <laughs> I think I'll end on that cheery note. It is after all Christmas. <laughs> so yeah, so just trying to uh, find my way through this and I know you are too, and I appreciate you tuning in. And again, uh, thanks for joining me for the Daily Evolver. Find all my stuff at dailyevolver.com. Join Integral Life. We'll see you next time, next Wednesday. I like doing this live. We'll do it. See you next Wednesday at one, Mountain Time. Thanks. Bye.